The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. Each and every week we say, send us a message, send us people that we should be talking to. And Holly, we get messages and nine times out of 10, we reach out and people are like, no. Who are you? Yeah. <laughs> they ask us, who are you? And where did you come from? <laughs> and, and, we, and we let them know. But I received uh, this email that it said, uh, hey guys, you should talk with Elizabeth Hagen. She would be a great guest. I'm sure that you will have an amazing conversation. Well, here, here I am for an amazing <laughs> conversation. Yes. Uh, well, it's, <laughs> Let's it's do funny, it. funny, though. So uh, about a month ago, um, we had a chance to talk with uh, Marina Hoffman. And it, was, it just so happened to be uh, Brain Injury Awareness Week. Mm-hmm. And as we're kind of gearing up for it for this week, and you had sent a message that it's uh, Infertility Week, I think we'll dive into all that. But it's, uh, it's amazing how God sometimes has it. Oh, you need somebody. Here's somebody who could talk about it. I love that. Yeah, that's wonderful. Without further ado, we will ask you the hardest question you will get today. And then from there, it's all easy. And that question is, who are you and where did you come from? Well, my name is Elizabeth Hagen, and I currently live in Athens, Georgia. And I have grown up uh, in the southern part of the United States. I was born in Nashville, Tennessee. But I spent most of my adult life until about a year ago in the Washington, D.C. area, um, where um, I had my first job and met my husband and had my daughter and all those things. So um, it it is kind of odd coming back to the southern part of the United States. (laughs) It's not necessarily a region I expected to live in as a as an adult, but I'm glad to be back and saying a lot of y'all which is mm. what people say. Yes. In these parts. Is there a big difference then between say like a Washington DC to a Georgia? Yes. Some people would say no. They would think that say I, um, my address in DC was actually in the state of Virginia. So they say, Oh, that's all the South. It doesn't matter. But I think <laughs> the mid Atlantic region is very different in terms of its sort of metropolitan nature. Um, you know, in Georgia and and where I am, I am actually a pastor of a a congregation called First Christian Church of Athens. And there are things I do some days where I go sit on people's porches and rocking chairs and Mm. I, I just hang out. I love that. Well, I don't like, I I don't like sweet tea, which makes me a terrible Southerner, but um, (laughs) I should really. But anyway, I I sometimes marvel at my life. Like this is what it's become. You know, I sit in rocking chairs on porches and Mm -hmm. I do love that. It it is lovely to be in a place where, you know, DC was a fast paced. Everybody, you know, is doing something incredible with their life. You can hardly keep up, you know, with the pace, but um, here one thing I love about living where we are now is, is just the time that I have that there's just more spaciousness in people's lives. So that's fun. So you had me a woman pastor. (laughs) (laughs) Cause I grew up in the eighties and then it was really rare to see a female on stage preaching. You Mm -hmm. would find them in the Sunday schools, the nurseries. And there's this whole thing in the evangelical world about women in that kind of position when you were younger, was the life as a pastor and not a pastor's wife something that you were aspiring to? 
Oh goodness. No, I'm right there with you. I mean, I'm okay. a child of the eighties. Yes. Um, no, I didn't, I never saw a woman preach, um, or lead a congregation until I was in um, my early twenties. Mm. Uh, I did not think that that was even something I could dream about. Cause I just never saw it done. I mean, the kind of the theological stance toward women in, in the church of my childhood, where I grew up was, you know, women can teach children, women can mm-hmm. teach other women, women can do mission projects or things like that, but never, lead, um, and never be kind of the spiritual voice of helping people understand who God is and where God is in their lives. But there was this thing that happened to me growing up, which was, I was really involved in youth groups and, uh, we would go on these trips, you know, that's what you do. You got to entertain them and Mm -hmm. take them somewhere. (laughs) And we would come back and everyone wanted to hear like, how cool was the trip? And what did you learn? And, uh, in my setting, all the boys who were supposed to be the speakers would never want to talk. And so they'd like punch me and be like, Elizabeth, do you want to say something? And from maybe the age of 13, 14 on, I discovered that I loved public speaking and I loved the idea of having an experience in my life or with God and being able to share it with people. And it was so fun, but yet I just knew that that kind of had to be repressed, you know, and it wasn't until when I was in college, I began to have my life intersect with, I counted it at the time. It was just kind of an, like a avalanche of five women <laughs> that I got to know in the series of a, a, a couple of years who are all either um, ordained or in uh, leadership positions in their churches or in a university. And I just was so encouraged by them and, and started to dream new dreams for my life. I think with God's help and, um, I have been ordained now for over 15 years and have served local churches and nonprofits in a variety of capacities since then. You grow up in Nashville. So then what's the dream before being a pastor to be a music star? Because my assumption is everybody in Nashville mm-hmm. just wants to be in music. No, it, it wasn't that. I, I really thought that I was going to marry a pastor or or a missionary or some sort of humanitarian worker. And in my tradition... Um, I say this kind of jokingly, but it's true that um, God sent strong women abroad because, um, you know, we couldn't handle them in our actual country. And so I really (laughs) thought that I was going to go live in, you know, Asia, Africa, something. And so um, that that was what I saw. So my undergrad degree was in education and I was going to be a teacher and, um, you know, maybe live somewhere and help teach English. I I don't know what I was going to do, but um, it really was so powerful around my last year of college that I saw, I saw women in, in church leadership positions. And I ended up teaching school for a year and kind of got it out of my system. You know, all those flashcards and yes. um, school supplies <laughs> I've been saving for years to make my dreams of being in charge come true. Mm-hmm. But then I really knew that I, I did love the church and I was enjoying spending more time there than I was in my classroom. And so maybe I needed to pay attention to that and to go to seminary. I love that you say that they uh, sent the strong women abroad. It reminds of yeah. Amy Carmichael. My grandmother always yeah. was like, yes. this is some that you need to like look towards because I grew up in a primarily white community. And so she's uh-huh. like, see how God used her dark hair and eyes to speak to those in India. And she's a strong woman. And I was like, yeah, but I don't really want to go to India. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know. It was like I had to kind of gear up for the fact that I was going to go live in a hut somewhere. Cause like, that was the only vision yeah. of my life that was yes. accessible. Yeah. Um, 
but maybe I, that was not what I was meant for. Maybe I was meant to live in a place where there was a mall, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's where I live. I live in suburbia and they need Jesus there too. So uh. it's such, and then you found a husband who loved the fact that there was a strong woman in his life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, he, when we met, um, I didn't know this at the time, but he said it took him six months to decide if he was going to ask me out. Cause he's like, Whoa, if I like this girl, can I kiss a pastor? <laughs> Turns out, yes. 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 Can. Um, and, but he, you know, by the time he asked me out, which I didn't know was such a journey until later, um, he, he was ready for, you know, whatever came and, and it worked out. And we, this year we will have been married 15 years, but um, yeah, he's, he's wonderful. And, uh, but he's not a religious I mean, he is, he has faith, but he's not a church person in terms of having a job in the church. Um, Mm. People are often surprised by that because they think, well, if you're a woman in ministry, you must do it with your spouse. But there are so many ways to serve God in Mm. the world. And his way has been being in nonprofit leadership and in other um, leadership positions in business. Okay. A question still about, you know, being in that position of leadership as a female, and then you have a baby on the way, or you have a daughter or, you know, like you're, you're switching gears from being, you know, a a wife, but now you're also going to be a mother. However, that, that happens. Mm -hmm. That's a a bit of a a shift. How did you and your husband manage going from uh, two adults to now having uh, a child in your life? Well, that in fact has been quite, um, was quite a journey for us to become parents. It's something that we desired um, pretty quickly after we were married and found ourselves in a eight year long struggle Mm -hmm. through a variety of different avenues of trying to figure out how it was that we were to add children to our family. Um, Along the way, we went through several failed adoptions. We went through several failed, um, fertility treatments. Um, I had several miscarriages and, um, it was one of those seasons of deep grief and loss in our life where we, uh, were looking for what the way forward was. And in many ways didn't know because we felt like we were trying and doing everything we could and praying and seeking God and knowing that it was part of our calling as much as our calling was to be married, as much as our calling was to have the jobs we had that we were called to be parents and just really frustrated with the timing. I ended up writing about that journey in my first book called birth, finding grace through infertility. Um, I, I wrote the book, not because I like grew up a Uh, dreamed of being a writer one day, but because when I was going through that season in our life, I was looking for spiritual resources, like someone who would tell Mm. me what it's really like um, to long for something and have it not be fulfilled. And someone who would tell me not just to pray harder, because I mean, I was praying and nothing was happening. And someone that was just wrestling with God and the deep questions of life. And so I had a friend who kind of nudged me like, okay, please quit talking about how you can't find any books. Why don't you just write one? And so I started that <laughs> journey of learning what it's like to write a book and, um, and have found that to be a, a big part of my ministry in telling our story of, and not forgetting those years of pain and loss and grief and, and finding places within the context of the church to open up conversations about how we can talk about difficult things and infertility, miscarriage, adoption, loss, all those things are are very difficult, but often things we don't talk about. How do we get around that though? Because I think a lot of times that the difficult conversations are the ones we need to have, but it's not necessarily the ones that we are. And so we're all grieving or all dealing with whatever that is, but yet we don't have that outlet. 
That's so true. And I, I think it, it ultimately, I, I think it starts with the leadership. If you're in a community where you're around someone, I mean, you know, this like from your own personal friends and family, like if you're around people that you feel like are being real and truthful about their life, I mean, it doesn't it make you want to talk more about yours. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we have so many faith communities um, in our world that just often fall plastic because mm. um, the leaders are too afraid to admit you know, it's almost like sometimes we want to feel like we have to carry Jesus, like do Jesus's work for Jesus when Jesus already did the work and we don't have to do that. You know, we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to pretend like nothing ever goes wrong in our lives. And we, we, we don't, we don't have to be somehow non-human. And, um, so that's, that's been a real big thing for me and, and kind of came out of this season of writing this book first and, and talking to communities about it. I um, ended up publishing a book last year in June called Brave Church, um, tackling tough topics together. It's actually answers your question. Like, how do we do this? It's a study Mm -hmm. guide um, step-by-step for a small group to take on um, to be able to know how exactly you begin tough conversations in this book, I do talk about infertility and miscarriage. I talk about mental health. I talk about domestic violence. Um, I talk about racism. I talk about sexuality and how we can have maybe different experiences or even different viewpoints, but how we can still stay in conversations, even when those are difficult spaces. And that's so important. I've noticed now, um, maybe so more so around the past two years, where there have been so many polarizing conversations, you know, vaccines, COVID, you know, masks, lots of conversations like this, where people have almost lost the art of having a well-rounded discussion without it turning into, well, you don't believe what I think, so we can't be friends. But then you lose out on the the wonderful fullness of different kinds of friendships and how they can support you and challenge you. And I I found that growing up in the church too, it was almost, and I I hate to use this term, but like toxic positivity or a toxic spirituality or like, just, you know, like you said, just pray harder. Are you trusting Jesus enough? And like, I'm trusting real hard. I'm trusting so hard. I'm sweating. (laughs) Like where are these real conversations where it can be like, sometimes it just doesn't feel like it's working out. Did you right. find a lot of pushback in starting to address this and bring it to light? There are some people who are afraid because it's almost like you open, you know, so many people have their lives so neat and organized that mm-hmm. if you begin to like pull one thing out, they think the whole thing's going to fall apart like mm-hmm. a house of cards. Yeah. So yes, of course, there's always pushback with anything that you push forward. But I would say so many people have come up to me and are like, thank you, thank you, thank you. You don't understand like you know, I finally was able to say out loud, you know, what it feels like to be a person of color in my community. I know what it's like to, um, to be able to say to someone, you know, you all saw my first marriage fall apart, but you don't know why, because domestic violence was a part of the story. And I didn't feel like I could share that in this community. And I just think amazing things happen when we are courageous enough to begin to talk about what, what is really going on in our lives that we find a sense of deeper community and belonging, because isn't that what we're all looking for? I mean, that's why I went into this whole church thing myself. I want to feel like I'm in a place where I am known and loved um, as I am. And, and I fear that that's not the experience of church. So many people have um, because they just, 
because we feel like we have to show up with our best selves, whatever that might be, or shinier than we really are. But what we really need is to be known and loved um, wherever we find ourselves in our journey. We talk about tackling those tough topics. Do you find, is there one topic that outweighs all the other or does it depend on the season? It totally depends on the community um, Mm. uh, where that, that conversation is coming from. That's one of the questions I've asked. I've had people in cohorts over the past um, uh, several months uh, that have been doing this book, Brave Church. And I always ask them, what was the hardest topic of the ones addressed in the book for you? Um, to tackle in your group. And, and it, usually it's something different, but I would say, especially, um, you know, where I live in the United States, an issue that is a real um, conversation starter and um, has so much energy around it right now is racism. I think the events that happened in the U S with George Floyd in 2020 and his murder is, has just brought up so much um, in so many communities. And um, we're finding new ways to begin um, those discussions in a way that opens up space for new people. And I will say in the editing process, my book, that's the chapter that got the most pushback. You talk about the editing process and going through with your edit. What, did you have certain editors? Because it is a, an array of topics, an mm-hmm. array of difficult topics. You mm-hmm. can't necessarily, or did you have one person you know, who looked at this and another person or how did you go about that process? All those things, you know, (laughs) (laughs) writing a book is like a marathon. People think, Oh, you just, you know, sit down and do it. You know, you have your own. I mean, for me, when I, anytime I publish anything, um, I really, I do care about, you know, the people in my intimate circle, what they think about it, because, you know, you can, the whole world is never going to love you about anything Mm. you do. Right. But the people that, you know, whose opinion mattered to you most. And I had, you know, people who are experts on these topics who are friends of mine, you know, read it, tell me what are my blind spots? What am I missing? I had a, a general editor from the publisher who kind of oversaw the process and they brought in other people. Um, I said, I'm not an expert on any of these topics. These are not something I've done dissertations on, but what I am an expert on, I feel like is, is being someone who starts conversations in community. Cause that's what I do every week when I lead studies or gather people for meals or, or just being together on Sundays. And, um, and that's what I wanted most to come across that, you know, it's not about, well, this is the answer to our problems with this topic, but this is how we, we get in a conversation and this is how we stay in a conversation because those two things are really ultimately most important. Before we jump into our, our why me moment that I'll ask you so you have a chance to ponder on that, I just want to touch on infertility because this week is a week that um, the spotlight will be on that uh, about couples. It's in, in my opinion, I've not experienced it, but I feel it'd be super painful for both husband and wife, everyone involved to have the loss of the child. For you and your husband walking that firsthand, what was it, it like, I guess, just going through that? And then what were maybe some of your biggest lessons learned during that season? Well, it can be a very frustrating process because you take something that is supposed to be intimate and sacred and something that you don't share with your friends or your doctors or your parents, what you're going through, um, and it becomes a public project, you know, and that, that is just weird and awkward and, um, you know, involves a, a going to the doctor way more times than anyone ever wants to go to the doctor. I think when you're going through an infertility journey, um, you know, there are some months you go every single morning before you go to work and, and it's just grueling. You um, And I think people don't understand because it's often a hidden away process that you don't see publicly or people don't even talk about. They may not mention all these things that I just said. 
folks don't understand how grueling it can be, but how much, how much desire to grow your family, you know, you have to really want to do that, to go through the hell Mm -hmm. I say that is an infertility journey. One of the biggest lessons that has served me and is continuing to serve me is that I'm not in control. I grew up in um, a culture that had a lot of answers and a lot of certainty about a lot of things. There are, of course, some things that we have answers for and some things that are certain, but there's so much about God and life to me that's a mystery. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we put our hope in, in, in doctors or we put our hope in professionals or people who you know think they know things and we don't put our hope in God who may make no sense to us sometimes. Um, but even though God may be a mystery and God may make no sense to us, um, our calling as people of faith is to keep walking on the journey and know that what we need to know will be revealed when, when it's time. And so um, I, I think I carry that now um, in other aspects of my life, even though I am now a mother and um, that, you know, if people come to me with, oh, I have, I have this one solution for you, or I'm going to fix your problem, or I can tell you what's going to happen in five years if you just do all these things. I kind of want to laugh at that now because I have been through um, such, such ups and downs in my life where people have said those things and it's just not true. None of us know, mm-hmm. um, but we can, we can stay on the path and see what happens if we're willing to just um, to trust that God is, is beyond us and we may never understand, but that's okay. You said that yeah, there's the this calling sometimes that we feel like we hear from God and you're going through the loss of a child. You're going through the loss of adoption. At any point, did you and your husband look at each other and say, maybe we misheard? Maybe this isn't supposed to happen? Well, you know what was interesting when I was in the, okay, I'm going to publish, you know, I've written a manuscript. I'm going to publish this book. Let's find the right source um, of someone that would be a good partner. And I had uh, editors at publishing houses say, now this is before my daughter came into our life. They said, well, we can't publish this. It has no resolution. And I'm like, what are Mm -hmm. you saying? And they said, well, we need you to either say that you decided that you heard wrong and you're not supposed to be a parent, that that's not your desire anymore. Or we want to hear that you had children. And I actually went to print before there was ever a a child um, coming into our lives because Um, I just never could be either of those things. I never could say that my desire went away. And that's the thing. I was like, you can make me on this terrible journey, but don't take away what I know that I know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It doesn't mean that it will happen, but I can still know what I know. And, um, and, you know, I don't, I think so many times we want to tie a bow perfectly with a hard story. We want it to be the fairy tale ending. And that's kind of what the publishers, I think, were asking for me at that point. We want to know that, oh, you know, and 10 years later, you know, <laughs> something beautiful happened or whatever. But I think we need more stories. And that's why I really appreciate your work and what you're doing um, about the messy middle, right? Of like <laughs> the in-between times. It doesn't always have to be all neatly complete, but um, that God can still be present in the in-between and how we get from one hard mountain to another. Um, is an important part of the process. I wish we could learn the best lessons when everything was awesome, but that is rarely the case. (laughs) That is so true. (laughs) So hence this podcast where we ask about those moments in the valleys or the mountaintops where we've asked God, why me? Have you ever asked those, that question of him and, and how did you navigate your way through that? Oh, I ask it all the time. Yeah, right. 
heck is going on? This morning with my coffee. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Why am I in traffic again? Mm-hmm. Why did my car break down on the side of the road today? Um, whatever it might be. But no, I mean, I, I think our infertility journey certainly has been one. Why has it been so hard? Um, uh, why has this been a key part of my story? I, I asked that a lot. I still ask that. Um, I, I asked that question about, um, other children who have come into our life in non-traditional ways. Um, my husband and I have a real passion for um, children who've grown up in international orphanages. That's um, been a part of his nonprofit work for years. And I am in contact with a, a group of kids right now in Kenya that are going through a terrible kind of separation from their home of origin, their, the children's home that raised them. And it's just complete injustice what's happening. And um, I say, why God ab- about their situation all the time? Um, why, why are they in a place where I can't help them fully because they're in another country and I can't go there and they can't come here? Um, why are they not given the same um, opportunities that my child is being given as far as education and equality? You know, I, it's, I, I think if you don't ask the why questions, you're not really living <laughs> because... Mm. There's so much that's just so confusing about being a human being. I don't quite get it. Um, but you're right. It is in those low moments um, that we find how to live in the, in the moments when things are going well. Books available right now, elizabethhagen.com, at Elizabeth Hagen on the Insta. We appreciate you taking some time and uh, sharing your heart today. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you both. I think we need to have more conversations that are the tough ones. We are going to grow from that because if we don't have it and we continue to just put our head in the sand that none of this stuff is going on, how are we going to learn? How are we going to grow? How are we going to help out others who maybe have gone through the same thing that we have or we've known somebody who's gone through that? Exactly. And I also think it helps refine the way we talk about certain things. Having yeah. other people's perspective on something might make you think of something in a different way. And and it just, it truly helps us grow if we can approach hard conversations with love and curiosity. I want to love and encourage. And a lot of times I do that. I'm probably wrong on it. But if there's a <laughs> nugget of something that you can get from my encouragement, or you walk away saying, you know, 90% of what he said was like completely wrong, but I like this part. I'm okay with that. Exactly. Which is why I love guests like Elizabeth, who um, not are only lovely people, but they also are so well versed in what God has has said um, through scripture and through their own life. And for her to share a little bit about her infertility journey. And I just really appreciate it, especially on this particular week where that is one of the conversations that we are having. And, And continue to have and will continue to have. You think that you're going through it alone? And then you find out later there's seven or eight people that you go to church with or that you mm-hmm. work with who's gone through something that you've gone through. Exactly. Which is why we have to talk about these hard things yeah. so that you know you're not alone. Not that misery loves company, but that you can support each other in a very real and tangible way. Iron sharpens iron. Shout out to Angela. Thank you for the uh, email. Project at Outlook.com. All the socials as well, our Facebook, our Instagram, our Twitter, our TikTok, our MySpace, our Pure Volume, wherever (laughs) you need to find us, we are going to be there. Plus, there's all the places to download our podcast. Exactly. So pretty much wherever you get your podcast, just search Why Me Project and voila, we will be there. So yes, Edify, even iHeart now, which is pretty cool. (laughs) 
and of course online at faithstrongtoday.com. 